We are picking up where we left off in 1 Peter, and we'll go ahead and jump to chapter 2. And we left off starting in verse 11. So we ended with verse 10, and I won't hold it against you if you don't remember every word of the previous few verses, because it's been a couple weeks, so I won't hold it against you there. The, so for those of you who don't remember what's going on, Peter has been describing us, the church, with metaphors. We're living stones, we're a chosen race, we're a royal priesthood, we're a holy nation. And he's reminding us of our identity and our roles. And that, that has a certain effect, right? If I say, man, I said, hey, beautiful people, something like that, right? All of a sudden, you're feeling a certain way because of how you're dressed. Well, if all of a sudden somebody addresses you as a kingdom of priests, what are you supposed to feel? What are you supposed to think about? What did I just call you at the end of the day? And we discussed what the kingdom and the priestly role of every Christian really is. It depends on the direction that you're looking, right? So king, the kingly role that he gives us, right, is we look to earth and we seek to bring all things into submission to his authority, to his kingly authority. We are um, vice regents. We are seeking to bring the kingdom of Jesus to pass in any and every situation, circumstance that we touch. That's our kingly role. So when we look at the world, we function as kings, not in an authoritative do what I say sense, but on behalf of the true king saying there is a king. He does have a kingdom and he deserves your allegiance. So this is how my home submits itself to the authority of Jesus's kingdom. This is how my workplace. This is how my commute. This is how my uh, relationship to my church this is how my family, this is how all these things work when they're in submission to the kingdom. And he put you there on purpose. Everywhere, every network that you're a part of was God's best strategy to bring his kingdom to bear on that place, in that network. You, as, as those who are representing the kingdom of Christ. So we are a kingdom of priests. And then the priestly idea is when we look to God, what we do, what do priests do? Well, Priests are ministers of reconciliation, and they also bring praise on behalf of a large multitude. And so we talked about what's the multitude that we represent. Well, it's before all of creation. We alone have the mouths that can utter the praises that he deserves, right? Birds can't do it like you can do it, okay? So we are, we are summing up the praises of all the earth to our God as his priests, and we are also ministers of reconciliation, right? Just like the priests were. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to take all the broken, bad stuff, right? And reconcile it to God to be, once again, into submission of his kingdom. So that's the kingdom priestly idea. And he's trying to persuade you that's who you are. That you're not just a Christian, so you should behave yourself. No, you are your kingdom of priests. You are a kingdom and priest to our God. And that's how he, that's what he, he speaks of you about. Okay? Today, he leaves the metaphors and he delivers some direct commands concerning our personal and public holiness. Personal and public holiness. What on earth is public holiness? We're going to see that in just a minute. What is public, what is public holiness? What are, we, what are we pursuing? What do you think our role is as regards to the broader public? Should we be completely different from everyone to show people they have to leave the world's ways behind? Like, is that what our relationship to the broader public should be? Being a Christian means being different. So you got to leave the whole world behind and everything that looks like and smells like the world in order to be a Christian. Or should you try and fit in so you don't unnecessarily drive the world away and then use that platform to show which differences really matter? 
What's public holiness? What does it mean for us to live as the church in the middle of a world that doesn't fear the Lord? Should we try and blend in and then use that platform to bring people to submission? Or should we just cut ourselves like almost Amish style, completely away from the rest of the world and do our own thing? And just hope they just praise them. Well, we're going to get some help with that question as well as some other questions in uh, this next passage. Look at verse 11, if you would. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Hey, we've heard that before. Remember the beginning of the book? He's reinforcing something about you. You don't really belong here, okay? Sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So this is pretty easy. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Like what? What's a pa- what are passions of the flesh that we're supposed to stay away from? Well, I think the list is pretty easy, right? Things that uh, we typically talk about. Lust, anger, greed, self-indulgence and self-centeredness, um, perhaps retribution, um, right, of uh, tit-for-tat kind of uh, relationships that we have with other people. This isn't new for us to be told from the Bible, stay away from and abstain from the passions of the flesh. But this next part actually probably will be a little bit new. Look at this. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. This is going to need some elaboration. Wage war against your soul. When we're tempted by the flesh, it normally doesn't dawn on us what the war is that's actually taking place. When you and I are tempted in whatever capacity, and our temptations are different, yours and mine, in lots of different ways, the flesh tempts us in different ways. But I don't think we actually, it dawns on us what's taking place when that happens. So take, for example, the passion of the flesh that you gravitate towards. When you're at your worst in the, t- the moment of temptation, you typically think there's an inward war between what I know I should do and what I want to do. Right? Between what I know I should do and what I want to do. That's the battle. That's the war. And I got to I gotta kind of pull myself up by my bootstraps, get some... Um, you get some Holy Spirit zeal to say no to the flesh, right? And yes to Christ. To do the thing that I know I should do. Sort of like what we see in Paul. Okay? But, so like if you get tired, if you get irritated, you know you should keep your mouth shut, but you decide to say the thing that you shouldn't say anyway, right? I've been there, okay? So yeah, that's the moment of temptation, okay? You're tired, you're irritated, you got plenty of excuses, you had a long day, etc. Right? And you know she holds your tongue in that moment, but you don't. You decide to go for it. Is the battle in that moment what you know you should do versus what you want to do? Is that the core of the struggle, according to Peter? I don't think so. Peter describes the war differently. He says, these passions are waging war against your soul. So the war is actually this. Something is attempting to sabotage your soul. That's the primary core issue that's going on. So if you're sitting at home and you know it's a bad idea to sit at home by yourself and surf the internet when you're bored and mindless, okay? What at that moment tells you, I need to leave this place. I'm in a moment of temptation. I'm going to do something else. Is it because you know you should and shouldn't do things And so then you decide to do what you should and shouldn't do versus what you want to do. No, there's actually another war taking place where the very passions that are being raised up in your heart are attempting to sabotage your soul. This isn't a neutral you versus you kind of situation here. 
These passions are seeking to take you out, take your soul out. What does that mean to wage war against my soul? What does it mean that these passions are seeking to, to wage war against my soul? As we give into the flesh, our soul is less and less alive to the things of God. Did you hear that? As we give into the flesh, our soul is less and less alive to the things of God. Our soul loses. That's the victim there. So we pursue holiness and we abstain from the flesh, not just because we're supposed to, but because there's a war for our soul. And losing looks like growing cold to the things of God. That's what losing looks like in this battle. So I know that you know what I'm talking about. In your deepest, in your season where you've, you've not resisted the flesh and you've given into the flesh in whatever category, right? Those are the moments where you feel the coldest towards God, right? Those are the moments, those are the times when you, you can read your Bible but nothing speaks to you. Those are the moments when uh, you, you, you try to pray but you, real, you feel like it's just a show and you're like, why, Lord? Well, because you need to cut off the flesh over there. You, you, you're feeding the flesh. You're feeding your self-indulgence, right? When's the last time you, you uh, loved someone and gave sacrificially and poured out your time and energy for them? When's the, or, or has your entire, I'm not just talking about the bad ones like, like lust and lying and anger and swearing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about it's a, part of the passions of the flesh gets you to just focus on you your whole life. And it never dawned on you or occur you to actually pray for someone else and think of ways you can meet their needs. That's also the passions of the flesh that wage war on your soul. So the more and more you get consumed with self and self-indulgent uh, um, uh, and self-centered, you also grow colder and colder and colder. And your soul becomes less and less alive to God. So in, in, in your pursuit of personal holiness, he's trying to let you know there is a war going on. It's not a you versus you war where the thing, there's a, there's a good angel and a bad angel. You just got to listen to the good angel. No, there's a war in sense, there's a sense in which there, there is someone out there, the evil one, who is actively seeking to um, stir up the passions of the flesh and get them to sabotage your soul so that you will not love God as you should. I was particularly struck with Troy's um, prayer for the nations today. These people who are in prison for their faith, praying for me that I wouldn't grow cold in the faith. Wow, that's a rebuke, right? That is such a rebuke. These people are, are they, they've, they've sacrificed it all, right? And so they, they go before God, not to pray for their own safety, which I'm sure they do from time to time, but they go before the Lord to pray for you and me that we not fall asleep while we're in the middle of this. That's powerful. So we pursue holiness and abstain from the flesh, not just because we're supposed to, but because there's a war for your soul. And it, losing looks like growing cold to the things of God. This helps us say no in the moment. Because how many times does I'm not supposed to not work? Not a good strategy. It's not a good strategy to say, well... I'm not going to say this because I'm not supposed to. Sometimes, sometimes that's good. That's obedience. And that's what we should be after. But oftentimes that's not powerful enough. I'm not supposed to is much weaker than my heart will grow cold and I will fall away from my God. That's an altogether different story. So here's a strategy for personal holiness from this verse. You guys will write these down if you want Number one, identify what you gravitate towards. You gotta know what's trying to kill you, right? 
You got to identify it, make it clear. What passions of the flesh do you gravitate towards? What do you repeatedly say yes to that you shouldn't say yes to? What do you, uh, what, what do you find in your weaker moments that you gravitate towards? Second, so here's the strategy. Identify what you gravitate towards. Second, call it what it really is. It's war against my soul. <laughs> Identify it and then call it what it is. This is war against my soul. If I give in in this moment, if I say this word, if I look at this website, if I do this thing, if I decide I'm going to spend the rest of the day on me instead of loving and serving someone else, if I decide to do that, I can be guaranteed of this. My soul will grow numb and cold to the things of God. Is it worth it to me? That's the third thing. Decide it's not worth it. Identify what you gravitate towards. Call it what it really is. War against your soul. And then third, decide that it's not worth it. Now we move on to public holiness. This is where he goes in verse 12. Look at this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works or your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Public holiness. Keep your conduct honorable among those who don't believe. That's what, that's what he means when he says Gentiles. He says the people who don't believe, the people who are part of the nations, who are part of the world, when they see you, your conduct should be honorable. I think that's, I mean, I think that's pretty self-explanatory as to what that looks like, but we'll tease some stuff out in a minute. It's less about um, fitting in, and it's more about honor, okay? So the, the first question that I mentioned uh, was sort of like not the right question to be asking. Should I attempt to fit in with the world, or should I attempt to be completely different from the world? Well, if we're listening to Peter here, he's saying it's kind of irrelevant. I want you to, I want you to be held in honor. By the rest of the world. That's the question. Uh, are you actually, be, are you honorable uh, before the world? And then look at this. So that when they speak against you as evildoers. Wait a minute. I thought I was honorable. Uh-huh. Yep. When they speak against you as evildoers. Not if, if you happen to slip up and then they say you're an evildoer. No. They call you evildoers as you are seeking to live honorably. They make up stuff about you and what you do and the way you live, and it's, it comes, right? It says in Scripture that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It comes with the territory that if you're living your faith the way you should, you're going to ruffle some feathers. People are not going to appreciate it, okay? And then they will come up with reasons and stories to spin about you to call you an evildoer. This is a guarantee in the Christian faith. This should be what we experience on and off. It's when they speak against you, not if. They will see the truth and respond accurately. When? On the day of visitation. That word visitation is really interesting. He could have used like the second coming. He could have used the, uh, what's called the parousia. He could have used like a, a whole number of different terms to refer to the end times, the last day, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. But he said the day of visitation. The idea here is, is an owner coming up to basically take inventory as an overseer of, of something that belongs to him. He comes in and he says, okay, it's the day that I visit to find out what in the world's going on, okay? On the day of visitation when he comes is when what happens? Look at this. 
They may see your good deeds and glorify God. Okay, wait a minute. So that means not today. That means they're not, you're not going to get much praise from the world today from your honorable life. But that's not your goal. Your goal is that when they all stop pretending like God's not real on the day when he shows up and says, I am, I'm here. It's the day of visitation. They're going to be able to see the way you lived your life and say, glory be to God. That, that's incredible. They may see your good works that you do day in and day out and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is a scene. So what we're actually trying to do, we should be less mindful of how the world thinks about us today. Right? We should be less mindful and, and concerned about the world's opinion of us today. We should be more concerned about the world's opinion of us on the last day. Are you tracking with that? We don't need their present opinion to worry about. Remember, they call us evildoers when we're not evildoers. So their present opinion is not the, what we should be pursuing. Their present approval and esteem is not what we're after. It's their future reaction to the esteem. Uh, it's their future reactions and the esteem that they give to God when it's all over. That's what we're after. Do you live your life in such a way that it makes sense on the last day? That's a good question. Every single day, do you live in such a way that everybody, when it's all clear, there are no more atheists on the day of visitation, and they're all looking, they say, that makes sense why you did that. That makes so much sense because he is who he says he is. That's what we're after. We're not after the present approval or disapproval of the world. We're not after the present approval or disapproval or being uh, fitting in in the eyes of the world, nor are we concerned with cutting ourselves off from the rest of the world because it's hard to love the rest of the world when you're completely cut off from the rest of the world. That's not what we're after. We're after, I just want, I just want all my decisions to make perfect sense on the last day, on how I've conducted my life, the things that I prioritize in my life. How we act today should be shaped by how much sense it makes on the last day. Don't, don't let that miss you. How we act today should be shaped by how much sense it makes on the last day. The reverse is also true. All your time and energy, if it's spent on self, that makes total sense today. If all, it makes sense today for all my time and energy to be spent on myself, but that's a horrible plan for the last day. Horrible strategy for the last day. On the last day, will you be asked how efficient you were with your time? I'm not, I'm not using this as a, as a way to say, yeah, just let it all go. Don't do what you say you're going to do. That's not it. But... Our lives show what we prioritize. And how many times do other people make it into that list? It's a really bad strategy for the last day if all of our time and energy is completely absorbed with us and what we're doing. So it also mentions here that they see your good deeds. This seems to create a tension with the Sermon on the Mount idea, right? Many of you will remember when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is 
You know, it says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you give, give in secret, right? So that you're not trying to draw attention to yourself as you do good for other people, right? Um, so is, is there a tension here? Because it says when that they may see your good deeds. This is what you should do. Keep your conduct honorable so that they may see your good deeds. I glorify God on the day of visitation. So what are we contradicting ourselves? No, he's not. It's not a command. It's inevitable that we're going to be good doing good deeds and other people are going to be, see, be seeing them. Right. We have the Sermon on the Mount to correct our wayward hearts from trying to get praise from other people for doing the good things that we do. Right. But it doesn't mean that we do. We don't do good things. And the only good things that we do have to be in secret. Right. That's not what we're talking about here. It's inevitable. We aren't trying to prove anything by doing good and loving others. It's just who we are. It's it should be. So what's the answer then? What's the answer between the sort of the Amish ideal of just cut yourself off completely from the rest of the world and be a good Christian or try and fit in and use that as a platform to introduce people to Jesus? What's the answer? Well, it's neither. And it's both. You can't love properly if you're totally separated from the rest of the world. You can't. There are too many commands in here you're going to ignore if you try and live completely isolated from the rest of the world. Too many things in here you're going to ignore about how you're supposed to engage and interact with the rest of the world. But it also shouldn't be a surprise to your lost friends on the last day that you were in fact a Christian. You fit in all too well. And you never actually talked about Jesus when you were with them. That also shouldn't be what happens on the last day. It makes a lot of sense for you just to continue to live in the rhythm of your regular life and trying to be a good Christian in front of all your lost friends. And if it should happen to come up, then you'll be ready to share. On the last day, that plan will not make any sense. It's not, it's not a good strategy. They need to know. And you, he, God put you there on purpose so that they might hear. It's not, it's not a good plan for the last day. So both in our personal holiness and in our public holiness. Holiness is, is the way that we separate ourselves and we're distinct from the rest of the world. Holiness, public and our, our personal holiness. He's saying right here. That there will come a day when not just the church will see what we've done and how we've ordered our lives, but the rest of the world. And the priorities in your heart will be made clear. And on that day, it will not seem at all like, um, like peer pressure to hide in the shadows like it is here. Here, it's, the peer pressure is heavy. Right? The culture is heavy against you. Um, being vocal about your faith against you pursuing holiness, saying, I will not go see that movie with you, and here's why. Let's come to my house and watch something else instead. Right? You making decisions for personal holiness around non-believers. Okay? Um, the peer pressure is strong in the other direction, but on the last day, it's going to be the reverse. On the last day, when everybody sees clearly and everybody's done pretending that God doesn't exist... And he's standing there on the day of visitation. He's saying, okay, I gave you this. This amount of years in this, in this culture with these gifts comes for the day of visitation. How you, how you organized your life and the plans that you made, the peer pressure is going to be completely different. Because all of the watching world that didn't actually come to faith in Christ, they're going to look at you and say, you had all of that? You squandered it? 
You squandered it for an hour a week and on Sunday morning. That, that's all you were banking on was going to be a good strategy for the last day. That's it. And they're going to be muttering that to themselves on their way to hell. Golly, if I had that opportunity and all that, right? They're going to be looking at your life saying, why? Why, why didn't you do why didn't you love more? I pray that the people at Crossing Church on the lit will, will on that day re- receive so much. Well, we won't receive the praise, right? You give, they give glory to God. They don't give glory to us. But you're going to give lots of, you're going to give them all a ton of stuff to talk about on the last day. That's my prayer for this church, is that we will give the, the lost a ton of stuff to talk about on the last day of saying, oh, wow, wow, look what all that God done, did through these people. But going back to how we started, what it's gonna take to get us there is not just you leaving this morning and saying, I just gotta try harder now. That's, that's the message for today, I gotta just do my best try harder to like pray and read my Bible or something, right? That's, that, that's, not, that's not it at all. It goes back to this personal holiness issue. And, and those of you who don't yet follow Christ, those of you who are um, still toying with the idea of following Christ, I want you to listen very clearly, right? The, the same sin that wages war against our soul and the passions of the flesh is also coming after you, especially you. Especially if you're on the fence and you're not sure where, where you fit into all of this. Especially you are under attack because uh, the evil one doesn't want you to hear this message because this message is what rips you out of his his grasp. A message that God, in fact, has dealt once and for all with your sin so that you don't have to deal with it. So all of a sudden, that sin that was going to condemn you to hell, Christ felt that he took the punishment for you. All of a sudden, that sin that was waging war against your soul, keeping you from getting to know the God who created you that you will see face to face one day, right? The sin keeping you from that, he dealt with once and for all and says, sin no longer has dominion over you because of what I've done for you. That's before you today. That's before every one of us today. So we need to get real honest about first identifying what is genuinely holding us back and what we gravitate towards in our personal pursuit of holiness. Are we way too self-centered? I'll tell you that after experiencing what I experienced the past couple weeks, I feel like it's this, it's just this, uh, it's just like this air that we breathe out here. It makes so much sense and we don't realize the path that it's taken us down to where uh, it's, it's a shame that we've been together for Two and a half years, almost three years, and, and some of you haven't even been in my home, right? Man, what? That makes no sense to the church and the rest of the world. That's why Rand has to pray for us. Because <laughs> the, the church, the church, and, and they deal with their own issues as well, but they're not dealing with the issues of absolute exclusion and individualism like we are. You realize that's a, that's, that's not neutral. Do you realize that's not neutral? The air that we breathe that causes us to be by ourselves and concerned only with what we're up to. You realize that's not a neutral thing, right? It's not. That's waging war against our souls, keeping us from knowing our God better because we, just, we don't know each other like we should. 
So we, we identify what we gravitate towards, and then we call it what it really is. It's war against our soul. And then we decide that it's not worth it to give in. It's not. And I pray that, that this church will be known on the last day as those who planned well. Who knew that we only have so many breaths, breaths to take before it's done. And I, and I pray that this church and the people in this church, we will all commit to making it make sense on the last day why we chose what we chose. Would you pray with me? Thank you, God in heaven, so much for this word. And thank you for the correction that it brings. Not easy to hear sometimes, Lord, but that's why you give us your word. Because we need to be shaped, we need to be molded more like our Savior. I pray, Father, that you would uh, humble us, that you would make it very abundantly clear to us um, what is most actively seeking to wage war on our soul, in our personal life, and in our, our public life. And I pray, Father, there will be so much to give you glory for on the last day because the people of this church decided any other life was not worth it. Incline our hearts towards your testimonies, creating us a clean heart, renew a right spirit within us. For your glory and for our joy, I pray. Amen.